hello, and welcome to Off the Books, where we're surfing the uncharted waters of accounting, finance, and wherever else the waves take us. This particular episode is brought to you by Workiva, the risk reporting and compliance platform that simplifies complex work. Check it out at workiva.com slash podcast. My name is Nick Rinkowski, and I'm your host. I'm not an accountant, but I like asking questions of people who are so finance professionals can do their jobs better. This week, those finance professionals include Steve Soder and Nick Mazing. Steve, introduce yourself. Happy to, Nick, and happy to be here. Hello, everyone. Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado. I'm looking forward to debiting an update with our friend Nick Mazing today. Right. We do have Nick Mazing of Cintio, whose middle name should be A, for how many times he has joined us on the podcast. I, I'm always happy to have Nick here, although it does mean that I am the second best Nick on the show whenever he is around. So tell the people about yourself, Nick. You're dramatically overselling me, so it's going to be a big letdown. I, I can just huh. feel it. My name is uh, Nick Mazing. I'm the head of research at Centio. We're a Workiva partner, and I'm also a uh, podcast recidivist. I think I believe this is my third or fourth time here. So uh, you deserve it. Absolutely. Now, we catch up with Nick Mazing periodically because the world of finance changes very quickly, and Nick is always ready to make sense of it. To that end, last time we talked, Nick, SPACs were the hottest thing since molten lava, and now they are colder than a brass toilet seat in the Yukon. What happened? I might steal that line. I, I, I like it a lot. We spoke about the SPACs last time, and obviously very big growth in fundraising, and I think what happened is the government basically iced the party, right? There were two things that came from the SEC in very short order in April that had a chilling effect or new issuance. One of them was from the head of the accounting department. The other thing was from the corporate finance division. You know, on the accounting department, essentially they issued the guidance, it's pretty long, regarding how warrants should be accounted for in SPAC transactions. And it doesn't change the economics of the transaction. However, the financial reporting aspect of it changes dramatically. And Steve, you wrote about it on your blog. Yeah, yeah, I did. So stock warrants are a pretty big deal for SPACs. It's really the way that early investors can make a ton of money. I don't know if they generally get a ton of attention. And, and from an accounting standpoint, they'll generally sit, uh, at least had previously sat in the equity section of the balance sheet. But this new interpretation of guidance, and, and I would add that insofar as I can tell, the FASB, who actually sets accounting standards, has not issued any new guidance for this issue in particular, but the SEC interpreted it in such a way that those stock warrants had to be moved from equity to liabilities. Now, this might sound like a bunch of accounting mumbo jumbo, but that kind of a change is pretty significant. There's quite a few SPACs and reversed merged SPACs who are now looking at restating financials in order to reflect this. That could bring up some internal control issues. So it actually kicks off this whole bunch of chaos as people tend to work through that change. It's actually quite interesting to see it play out, although my heart goes out to the auditors and reporting teams who are having to work through these changes. The guidance is pretty technical. Like I, I had to read it twice. And if you, if you ask me about it, I probably still can't answer the questions. The second part is what came from the uh, corporate finance division. When we're talking about the SPACs last time, we we're talking about quote-unquote loophole where SPACs can actually do projections while in a traditional IPO, the company is not going to do projections. So in traditional IPO, it's wink, wink, so-and-so, you know, research company says that this market is going to grow at X percent. And the implication is, yeah, we're going to grow above that, right? But it doesn't happen. Now, with SPACs, the guidance that came from from the SEC was, number one, the fact that you can do projections is not licensed to do fraud, period. And then the safe harbor uh, applies only to private litigation. In other words, the SEC can still 
go after a company that you know is is doing something that is inappropriate and i think what happened is they looked at a number of situations where the projections were wildly optimistic and then at the, for the first or second call after the dispack these projections disappeared it was like oh it's not happening for example in one case there was a something that was communicated as pre-orders was letters of intent right <laughs> i can tell that i've been investing long enough letters of intent are meaningless right by and large there was another company that happened recently was projecting certain EBITDA numbers around the transaction vote for 2021 and then that number very recently got cut by 90 percent the regulator in my view really had to step in and they did it gently right there is there is nothing new in in what they said that they just said raise their hand and that's a good thing that's what the regulator is supposed to do and it had a chilling effect so in other words what happened is the number of ipos dropped dramatically the number of companies that filed was like within the first week i think it was something about 20 companies that filed that they either are delaying filings or will be restating filings and we've seen some some of the highest profile spac deals of the of 2020 already filed the restated filings i think the one two punch effect here was that the spac market was getting frothy and then the government cooled it off yeah nick you're closer to the market than just about anybody i know and your take just now that this was sort of a gentle involvement in spacs by the sec that's a little different perspective than I've heard. You read the news out there and the SEC is coming to crush SPACs and they're going to go away. But is, it, is that really your take that, hey, all things considered, the SEC probably is an anti-SPAC and they are taking more of a uh, softer touch here than they could otherwise? That's my take because the SEC mission is for free and fair markets. And if you have situations where you have accounting errors that are very widespread in a certain area, and then you have the issue with the projections where in a number of cases, a number of high-profile cases, the projections evaporated very quickly after the transaction. This is what you would expect them to do. Just you know, go to the marketplace. I think the underwriters and the advisors read the leaves, which is why you saw this big drop in, in SPAC IPOs and, and, and why you, you're seeing a number of companies still be doing a restatement. I don't think they have any sort of legal grounds to ban SPACs, but they saw the froth, they saw what's going on, and they had to step in hey, these are the rules. And I think the market, the marketplace saw that. So you have these SPACs that have been formed, these blank check companies that have been waiting for a target. Given this change, do you think in a couple of years when the clock runs out for those blank check companies to actually make that investment, they have to unwind? Do you see that being an issue 18 months from now? It depends on market conditions because the SPACs or if you view them broadly in the landscape of financial engineering, whatever kind of corporate finance type big transactions, they are dependent on or largely dependent on welcoming capital markets. Because in other words, because there is the uh, pipes, there is the, the how much scrutiny they get and things like that. So I don't know what's going to happen. If the markets continue to be benign, I would think that most companies would, would be able to find a deal. If the markets are are hostile, then maybe it's it's not going to happen. But it's very hard to predict whether the markets will be welcoming of, of the financing needs of these entities as they come to market trying to close deals. Got it. Nick, it is proxy season, which every year brings unique wrinkles and complexities. I'm just curious, what do you think we should be looking out for this year? <laughs> we power a lot of the media scrutiny of the proxy statement because we have a number of users at, at the business publications. And I have assisted some of our reporter users with locating perks that 
still exist golf club memberships and dinner club memberships and things like that. The requirement for the medium paid that's been a CO to medium employee paid that's been around for a while. I don't think it's as newsworthy anymore. In some cases, let's say the mayor of New York City, they're going after Chipotle. They use it as an argument, but I think it's relatively lower profile now. There is a lot more on ESG. We were seeing more ESG proposals. I think we are going to see more data requirements, whether it's coming from the SEC or the big indexers, because when you look at the big indexing companies control really very large voting blocks in the very large number of public companies, they can push for changes without really a some sort of a regulatory action. Another group is the exchanges. We've seen some moves from the listing venues regarding, you know, ESG topics and underwriters. It's another it's another venue for that. So I think this was the I would say the first proxy season where, where we're seeing a much higher focus on ESG than a year ago or two years ago, right? And I think that will eventually standardize itself. You mentioned the word underwriters, and that just put a bell off in my head to take a break here to hear from our own underwriter. We'll be right back with Nick Mazing from Centio. Don't go anywhere. Today's episode of Off the Books is brought to you by Workiva, the reporting platform that allows you to build better financial reports and save time. Curious thing, time. There is no scientific experiment that can definitively prove the existence of it. Archaeologists are so unimpressed by time that they mark the present as January 1st, 1950, the last time that carbon dating is possible because of changes in our atmosphere. It has now been now for about 70 years. And that's certainly true for finance teams, which have been making reports in inefficient manual heavy ways long before even the archaeologist marked the present. It is time to step into the future and stop copying and pasting, worrying about version control, and making manual updates. Workiva automates what should be done by machines, so the things that should be done by you, in-depth analysis, storytelling, actual, real, honest-to-goodness accounting, can be done by you. Workiva can't save time in a bottle, but it can relieve your bottleneck. So learn more today at Workiva.com. Okay, we are back with Nick Mazing and Steve Soder. We were just talking about proxy statements. And on the topic of seasonal reporting changes, there has been some moving around of risk factors in the 10K. Nick, what do you make of that? I'm a little bit conflicted because the, the moving around means that redlining or blacklining is, is way worse this year because it's harder to tell. Uh, it's, it will even itself out next year because it's harder to tell what's new and what's in, what's out. But in aggregate, I think it's a really good idea to highlight the important risk factors separately because in reality, there is too much boilerplate language in, in SEC filings. There is what I would call risk factors pro, right? There is just too many of these. The reality is that there's probably two to four risk factors that matter, right? Every company says our stock price can be volatile. Well, who doesn't know that, right? And <laughs> there's no reason for this to be up front and center. On the other hand, there could be, let's say, some regulatory pressures or anything like that. Really, there's really a make or break that can really drive what happens with a company. When you think about it, you know, the role of financial reporting, it's to inform investors, right? And I think that uh, the moving risk factors is a good step in that direction because the company highlight, hey, this is what we think is important. And I've got to agree with you, Nick, as, as someone who's been in SEC reporting for a long time, risk factors were just the dumping ground of every possible scenario your outside counsel could think of 
Our CEO might slip on the ice while walking into the office, which could materially and adversely affect our stock price. That kind of stuff, I think, is uh, not particularly helpful for investors. I would just echo what you said. I think it's a great idea, and there's far too much boilerplate language. And actually, not to go too far down it, but the SEC issued some guidance last year, I believe, to try to clarify and uh, make risk factors a little more meaningful for investors by adding the summary page and a few other things there. So let's hope that makes an impact. Nick, you brought up ESG reporting. We certainly don't want to let you get out of here without bringing up ESG. There was some news recently at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting where some ESG-related proposals did not pass and were not approved. The SEC recently put out a risk alert on ESG. They've had a lot to say. Tell us, Nick, what that means for this upcoming reporting area and and obviously all the kind of news that's happening and the reporters and, and other things that we show people are already participating uh, in ESG reporting. Yeah, so we at Centio, we see a, a, a different end of that. Obviously, Workiva just rolled out the ESG reporting solution, and we see it on the investor side. When you read the tea leaves, the ESG disclosure requirements are going to be becoming more prominent and mandatory. So number one, the new policy hired by the new SC commissioner comes from the AFL-CIO, which is a larger labor union with occasionally active in governance issues. But also, before that, she was the US policy head at the UMPRI, the Principles for Responsible Investing. And if you look at the UMPRI, it is essentially a commitment, and it's a firm commitment. <laughs> it's not the asset managers who sign on as signatories. They have to have, right now, it's at least 50% of assets under management with ESG considerations. They have to have ESG policy. There is record-keeping requirements. You can't just sign on and say, oh, we are we're, uh, assigned on to the UMPRI. And this is, as asset managers, it helps our business because we believe that right now is the record-keeping auditability requirements for asset managers regarding not just do we have an ESG policy, but when you're looking at their own company X, what is the sort of record keeping as a part of their investment memorandum related to ESG factors, right? Which has been taken into consideration, how things were ranked and so on. Now, different companies have vastly different approaches regarding what they consider ESG and so on. But the reality is that there is over a hundred trillion in assets that are now part of UMPRI. For institutional asset managers, when they work with pension funds and try to get money to manage, <laughs> the UMPRI is practically a requirement now. And it's coming from all angles, right? So let's say you're a bank and you have a certain commitment for green project funding and so on. There is a lot of stakeholders that need reporting for that. And your new product addresses that. And we're seeing that on the asset manager side. We're seeing it from the SEC. They had a risk alert regarding greenwashing. In other words, if something is marketed in the financial product marketplace as a ESG product, very broadly speaking, what does it mean? And in some cases, when they were doing audits, they found disconnects to be polite <laughs> between what was the headline product versus what was actually happening internally and the considerations that were taken into account. So I think the ESG will continue to grow across the board in terms of reporting requirements, in terms of how it's implemented on the investor manager side, the expectations for disclosure and so on. One of the things that I think is really interesting about new ESG regulations, and I'm thinking here about the EU they had this SFDR mandate that, again, without getting too technical, really required investors to begin asking questions about ESG. 
And the reason, Nick, why I find that interesting is because there's been a very long and hotly debated question. Are ESG measures really material for companies? If you think about materiality under the traditional accounting definition, it, it could certainly be debated. Well, if a government is requiring investors to begin asking about ESG, well, then that therefore meets the definition of what is material from an accounting standpoint. And it's so interesting to me that the regulators took an end run around getting that type of disclosures by instead of mandating it, they just made it material from an accounting standpoint, which you know then requires a certain level of disclosure. We saw that in the EU. I suspect that's going to happen in the US if it hasn't already. To your point about these green investing funds, JP Morgan just announced a $2.5 trillion, that's trillion with a T, of funding that you know was going to go to companies that take action on climate change. And of course, they're going to begin asking for ESG-related measures, which therefore become material, which therefore will require disclosure, and on we go. I think it's just a, a, a fascinating thing that we're seeing play out between non-financial measures and financial measures and accounting guidance and everything else. So anyway, wanted to add that in. I'm particularly close to ESG these days. So. And I think materiality was already there because if you look at, for example, issues such as FCPA violations, right? In other words, if you look at the SEC, let's say the US market capitalization is about 60% of the world, right? Depends on the you know year and day. So the, the SEC effectively controls 60% of the US financial markets. It's of the global financial markets, but if you look at fixed income and so on, it is actually much greater than that. And FCPA, which is an ESG issue, that enforcement can happen to pretty much any large company simply because they touch the U.S. in one way or another. Another aspect of that is uh, U.S. litigation, which gets very expensive very quickly for, let's say, local environmental problems. In other words, if you are a company which has a listing in the U.S., or your US-based company with some kind of an environmental problem at a mining site somewhere, that doesn't stay there. You're going to get sued in the United States, and that can be material. These are just two things that already existed that I think point to the materiality of what you traditionally consider ESG issues. Yep, I totally agree. Totally agree. So fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. I wish we could go on, but we have reached the closing question of the day. So before we get to that, I want to thank Nick Mazing, as always, of Cintio for coming on Off the Books and setting us straight. However, we have failed to mention, we've talked a lot about the, what's been going on in the last couple of months, but have not brought up the biggest Q1 news of all, which is that Crocs, the unofficial, unaware, and unwitting sponsor of Off the Books, they're back, baby. They grew 64% year-on-year in the first quarter and were even seen on the Oscars red carpet a couple weeks ago. Crocs are loved and hated in equal measure. I'm not going to ask Nick what this means for the market other than the fact that it means that civilization is unwinding in front of us. But I, I do want to ask him about guilty pleasures because Crocs are definitely one of those. Steve, Nick, what is your ultimate guilty pleasure? Doesn't have to be clothes necessarily, but something you are a little sheepish to admit that you love. I'll go first and tell you I am not sheepish to admit that I am wearing a pair of Crocs as we record. <laughs> Camouflage, I have them in sport mode with the strap around the ankle just so I can get up and leave in a hurry. What I will tell you is that there's a couple of cookie places close to our house. My wife's a big fan of a sugar cookie of one. I'm a big fan of a sugar cookie at the other 
and it's something we do quite a bit. That'll probably make Nick aghast because Nick isn't doesn't share my love of sweet treats. This this is correct, and I'm a little bit conflicted here because on number one, I'm a, I've been a Croc shareholder for a little bit over two years. So that's I have personally vested interest in 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 people like Steve buying Crocs. He actually makes me money. When I see a pair of Crocs, you know it's whatever a eight percent margin on a fifty pair of fifty dollar <laughs> pair of Crocs times whatever twenty PE. You're you know, welcome. It's, it's making me uh, it's making me very happy. On the other hand, I think the Oscars are a glorified trade show. Can't believe anybody watches that. But my speaking about athleisure, which is the big trend that Crocs are a part of, as a Eastern European, I. I might own uh, above average number of tracksuits and I'm you know not afraid to admit that on the record especially black Adidas tracksuits oh. like the the stereotype yeah it's true At, in our my ancestral home we call that the Polish tuxedo so I'm glad to hear <laughs> that it's alive and well to this day so very good Nick, been... Nick Rinkowski, we can't let you get off the hook so easy. What's your guilty pleasure? I, well, I've got to know. I love the Oscars, so I'm, I'm now I feel like I, I need to be <laughs> apologized for that. But my guilty pleasure, boy, there are. I also am am in, immured with sweets, even though I know they're terrible for you. I, I would say my guilty pleasure are childish drinks. I love chocolate milk. I love cream soda. I have the palate of a four or five-year-old and I can't stop myself. On the spot, that's what I'll go, especially as the weather is warming up. A cream soda will be in my, my refrigerator for the next three months. Love it. Okay, this has been Off the Books. My name is Nick Rinkowski. Please subscribe, leave an Apple Podcast review, or tell your buddies if you like the show. If you want to be on the show, you want to yell at us, you want to write at us, you can certainly do that at offthebooks at workiva.com. Otherwise, surf's up, and we will see you on the next wave.